Hey, everybody. This is Dan. This is Garrett. And uh, for tonight's episode, we have a really cool interview with Chris Vanderkay. He's an author with a book coming out called Spoiler Alert, the badass book of movie plots. That's correct. Okay, I knew uh, I was going to fuck that up. Co-written with uh, Steven Espinoza and Kathleen Killian Fernandez. And so he's uh, here to talk about his book and also to talk about the film Pontypool. Correct. So stick around and check it out. Stick around. Like, they're just going to stop listening right, exactly. 10 seconds in. You no. might. I would. Fuck yeah, this. Yeah, I don't know. We'll bone tomahawk you in just a second. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, you'll you'll know when it starts because of the bone tomahawk. Yeah, that. All that. Exactly. Go. Go. Yeah. Tomahawks. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it. Tomahawk, my little flute benders, and welcome to I Like to Movie Movie, the podcast about movie movies. My name is Gary Smith. <laughs> my name is Dan Scully. And uh, we are joined today by a very special guest. Uh, he reached out to us. Uh, he's the author of Spoiler Alert, the badass book of movie plots, Chris Vander Kay. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. But let's be honest, I'm, I'm somewhat special. I don't know if I'm very special. Oh, no, you're a very special guest, Chris. The fact that you reached out to us and, and opened with saying kind things about the yeah. show and then seeing, then arranging the guest thing, that makes you very special. You're very special because with us, we Chris. always appreciate it when yeah. people have kind things to say about the show because I'm always surprised that anyone at all listens. <laughs> yeah. Let well, alone people who write books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually wrote you as soon as I finished. I listen to your show a lot, but as soon as I finished the episode about Loose, I was like, all right, I'm on. Oh, I'm that's on. great. Yeah, it was a great, great conversation. Oh. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, thank you thank very you much. Yeah, so. Dan uh, brought that one to the show. I, that that was one that uh, you caught it at the Film Fest, maybe or something. No, I caught it. I saw it at a midnight show because it only played once in Philly. Right. But I was trying to offset my sleep for an international <laughs> right. flight, so I stayed up late to watch Loose and, yeah. and use that as the tool and end up ended up being blown away. Yeah, it's it's great because that's one of those movies that I feel like I might have just missed or looked over. It's you know what I mean? Miss, had yeah. you not brought it to the show, it's like that's one of the I don't know. It's one of the fun things about uh, doing the show, which is uh, Chris. You you we'll, we'll get to. Uh, we're going to talk about your book for a little before we get to it, but we're going to be talking about Pontypool, the uh, the 2008 movie uh, directed by Bruce McDonald. Um, and uh, this is another movie where it's like I I did see this once before, but like years ago, and it it kind of like I don't know, it like came and went out of my brain, you know, and mm -hmm. so like. I was very glad that this was a movie you wanted to talk to us about because revisiting it was 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 quite a treat. So, yeah, I I've taught uh, screenwriting for a few years at, at college, and I use a couple of films to demonstrate how because nowadays, especially uh, people who want to be filmmakers, I tell them, or if they want to be screenwriters, I say you kind of also have to be filmmakers at some point because mm -hmm. you usually can't get a film made unless you've got something made. So you got to make a film yourself. And so I use this film, and they look like people as examples of ways to make really fantastic high concept movies that take place on a very small scale. I'm pretty sure they look like people only has one effects shot that I can remember. There was like a face droop in it, and otherwise it's like no budget. Face droop. A face yeah. droop. I, 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 if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, I, I'd hope. The classic face droop effect, yes. Yes, of yeah. course. The FD, as they call it. Uh, so, yeah, so why is it that you brought Pontypool specifically? Uh, Pontypool is one of my three favorite films of all time. Uh, right on. Yeah, and they're they're all sort of interesting, sort of, I don't know, redheaded stepchildren of their genres and their eras. The three films are Magnolia, Pontypool, and the documentary American movie. Oh, and, man. 
You are speaking our language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and something about all three of them is that their, their films, even Magnolia, who's by a, a very well-known filmmaker, it's a film that people don't, either people love it or it's sort of the black sheep of the, of his family. I, I was um, going to say it's maybe the least talked about uh, PTA. Yeah, I would it's say, the least talked you know? about. I know it recently just had, I believe, a 20th anniversary. Yeah, it's yep. and as and I watched it again for that, and it, I was amazed at how much I forgot about that movie. Yeah, and just how watchable it was. I think I always dismissed Magnolia as like, oh, it's a three-hour movie. It's going to be a slog. And it's not. It rips. Dude, the tragedy of Quiz Kid Donnie Smith is like <laughs> one of my favorite fucking things ever. That that line PTA that he, is not kind to William H. Macy. Uh, I know. But that line he has at the end about uh, I have so much love to give is like, I think about that like a lot. Yeah. Like the older I get that line, that really means something. And like it means different things as you live more life. You know, it's yeah. like. Well, the beauty of that movie is I feel like every time you watch it, uh, where you are at in your life, you connect to a different character in this uh, gathering of people. And that's sort of the brilliance of the film is every single time I'm like, oh, you know what? I see where this guy or this lady is coming from way more than the last time I watched it. This last time I watched it, I mostly resonated with the frogs. I was like, (laughs) I get it, man. Jump. Right. We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very no, fun. that's horrible. Yeah. And so Magnolia, American movie, and Pontypool, the redheaded yeah. stepchildren of their genre. Yeah. yeah. That's a really interesting way to put it, but I, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Can you talk a little bit about what that means in terms of Pontypool? Well, the thing... I am one of those people, you know, when they say people are like purists about things, like if they watch Mm -hmm. a sort of a genre, they don't want things to go outside. They don't like people who color outside the lines. I am exactly the opposite. There is nothing I enjoy more than when you say you're going to make one thing and then it becomes a whole other thing. And I either didn't see it coming or I did see it coming and I still couldn't believe it. That is my favorite kind of filmic experience. And so when I watched Pontypool, uh, the first thing I loved about it was that the first half hour of it is it doesn't seem like a horror film at all mm-hmm. about the first 20 to 25 minutes feels like a quirky Canadian sitcom about, uh, about a radio station, about a small town radio station. It's, it's and, lower rent news radio. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, fantastic performances, but it does not feel like the thing it becomes. And yeah. that's sort of a sneakily that's a microcosmically uh, an explanation for the entirety of what they're talking about in the film, which is sort of this slow, transformation from the thing you think it is to something else entirely now the first time you saw it did you have any clue as to where the plot went because i went into it sort of knowing you know a an infection spread by words and uh i I wonder if my experience would have been different if i didn't know that going in did you have that information when you first saw it so when i first heard about the movie i was listening to a podcast years ago that had just come out that mentioned that but and so i was like oh that sounds interesting i wrote it down and in the time between when i wrote it down and saw it i forgot that they said that in the podcast mm-hmm. and it was only when i went back and listened to it again afterwards i was like oh you know somehow i guess i had known that and forgotten it but uh yeah so i got a very i got a really effective experience in watching it for the first time because that's one of the things i love the most about it was the methodology through which the virus travels in this movie uh makes the movie say so much more than you think it does yeah I was thinking about that a lot watching it this time. Like I, I like I said, the first time I watched this, like I, I think I liked it well enough, but like I don't remember a lot about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Didn't, and then I was watching it this time, and I don't know if it's just like watching it in 2020 and like the world we're living in or whatever. But like all I could think about was like this movie is about the cacophony of information. Mm-hmm. This movie is about a world in which you are getting new information every few minutes from multiple sources. Um, people 
you are also one of the deliverers of information, mm-hmm. right? But like you, your the your delivery method, if you're Grant Massey, your delivery method is based on something that capitalism forces you into, which is I have to have a brand. So like even the information I'm getting needs to be repeated through in like a specific context, right? Like the way I have to re-deliver this information about the weed violations is through like a scare tactic because like that's my brand. That's, that's the Grant Massey, yeah. you know. And it's very interesting. I don't know. I couldn't stop thinking about that as I was watching this movie, that it's about this sort of cacophony of information and the way... I think it's about a little bit the way that that even pointless words yeah. end up having an effect. Yeah, it yeah. is a little bit about the power of words within that cacophony. That's very interesting, And that's too, what yeah. I was thinking about the whole time I watched it the second time around was just... You know, we we are a little responsible for the the words even we put what out we there. Choose you can to affect say. Things. Yeah, that's interesting too. Uh, uh, Chris, I'm sorry. I'm sure you, it sounded like you were about to jump in. I was going to have either of you read Lullaby by uh, Chuck oh, Palahniuk? Yeah. Yes. That was yes. also something I kept thinking, which was my favorite Palahniuk book when I was like reading him a lot as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I loved Lullaby. <laughs> we all read him a lot as a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there there is a chapter in Lullaby that I love that is him just describing what if the cacophony of songs we've been singing and plays we've been performing and lullabies we've been singing to our children what if all of it at once there's so much of it is creating hurricanes and tornadoes and mass disasters and you know this idea that words could be a spell of some kind and if you don't know the spell well if there's enough of us making enough noise are we are, yeah, you are might we, just go with it right are yeah. we, we creating the incantation incidentally yeah, like, I, I mean, yeah, one of the things that blew, blew my mind watching this film when I first saw it and then now the resonance that it has is I remember thinking it was really clever that the way that they utilized words, they weaponized words in the movie. And then I realized uh, it, it's shocking to me that this movie existed like six years before the advent of what we call fake news now, you know, that phenomenon, mm-hmm. because this movie is so much about that idea. Like literally he's attempting to battle the spread of something with intentional gibberish, like with intentional misinformation. And it's fa- it's fascinating to me to see a movie that presaged something that I don't even think it was aware it was predicting. It And it felt ahead of the time, too, even in that, like, we're in a podcast era now as well. And it's sort of, I mean, I guess in, what was it, 2008? We did have the podcast at the time. But it wasn't really as as ubiquitous as it is. We kind of had podcasts then. That actually is like very, very early. That, that would like be very dog? early in podcasting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be like, you know, Kevin Smith and Ricky Gervais are the only guys doing podcasts. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And so, yeah, it like predicted kind of the, the spread of news and the spread of, as you said, fake news, as we call it. Yeah. And, and, uh, I was, I had the opportunity to interview Tony Burgess for one of our previous books. And the thing that I love talking about, uh, the thing I loved about talking to him is he, he told me a lot of fascinating stories about the making of the film. And of course the book, which it's based on, which he wrote. Um, but nothing I talked to him about clarified most of the questions I had about the film. And I Hmm. sort of, in a way, I sort of salute him for that because there's something important to him about the idea that there is some sense of confusion and mystery that you need to have leaving this film. And I, I'm very I, I, happy you said that because the yeah. first time I, I watched this movie, I sort of brushed up against that. Um, I, I was one of those people being like, but what are the rules of it? Yeah. I, I want to know, you know, you know, what is, how does this function actually work specifically? Yeah. And, and I, I rushed, I rubbed up against that this time around that really jived well. I had a very similar experience. Uh, I I put a quick review on Letterboxd just yesterday of this movie, and I, I said in it that I both times I watched this, I definitely, by the end of it, leave confused. 
but this time I left realizing that's a little bit the point. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, for me, I'm watching this thinking like it's about this cacophony of information. We live in a world where it's like almost every given day I have to recalibrate what I think is actually happening around me and is yeah. true, you know? <laughs> Um, and I don't know. I feel like that this movie is about that, that experience. Yeah, no, for sure. I completely agree. It's, um, it's, it's shocking. Like I said, it's shocking that a movie in 2008 could, could have predicted 2016 so terribly well. Yeah. Can you give an example of something that you asked Tony Burgess that you were trying to get clarification on and maybe how he answered that or didn't answer that? Well, I mean, yeah, the whole conversation is actually in our, in our book, uh, Indie Science Fiction Cinema Today. Uh, which is uh, interviews with a lot of independent science fiction film uh, creators, writers, and directors. Um, One of the questions I asked him was specifically about, uh, I guess, why, why did he choose to have, there was a third, you know how there was the characters who speak English, characters who spoke French. And then there was this one character, the doctor, the one that cracked the code, really, the one that told Mm -hmm. us really what was going on. He spoke an entire third language and he was the only one that spoke it. And, Mm -hmm. One of the things he told me is an interesting story about apparently Pontypool has been put on as a stage play numerous times. A lot of people have asked for the rights to it um, in different regions, different languages. Yeah, Yeah, totally. This makes total sense as a a stage play. But one of the things he said is that he always makes the one demand is that whoever that whoever's playing that character, you have to cast a person who speaks a language that is not the dominant or like native language of the country it's playing or that they're doing the show in. I get it. Yeah, yeah. And he said the reason for that is that everyone around him needs to not understand him because he's the only one that understands. And so he's sort of like, even when there's a solution, we still can't distribute the solution very well because there's yet a third language boundary. Yeah, yeah. That is fascinating because when it, every time this happens, when I watch a movie that's Canadian and they dip into French, I go, "Oh man, that's so cool! They're like naturally bilingual." Yeah. And I'm not. Uh (laughs) I want that. I want that to be my life. But uh, I never even thought about it in terms of just the crypticness of the communication when people don't know the same language. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, this whole movie, I, 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 it, I'm curious how far we'll get into the puzzle box that is this film, but there's such uh, an intricacy to the way that he has structured this movie that if you go back and watch it numerous times, I mean, if you looked at the paper that I made notes on, this is sort of the, this is the kind of thing that you find in a serial killer's room, you know, <laughs> into a wall. Mm-hmm. Um and, and red I read yarn connecting everything. And he's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's so many like little threads that he created because he wrote the book and then wrote the screenplay. So he's been thinking about this idea for a long time. There's a lot of really interesting threads running through this film. That's very interesting. I words mean, this is so fascinating. I love words. I know. <laughs> so this does speak to that scratches that itch a little for me. This is all how I feel about Adam Wingard's movie, The Guest. Uh, when you were describing earlier a movie where just like an hour in, it becomes a different movie and you're like, whoa, like, yeah, uh, what is this? Yeah. And a movie where you have to have this red yarn that you're always like coming back to every time you watch mm-hmm. it. Like, uh, I love I do love movies like this specifically that have that kind of thing. Yeah. The second time around watching this, I think my experience was colored by the fact that in between my first and second time, I fell in love with It Follows. Mm. And one of the reasons that I deeply love It Follows is that it steadfastly refuses to explain the rules. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they give you the most basic way of uh, to explain the rules of this uh, ghost infection. Yeah. And then there's things that happen in the movie that don't not make sense. But you have to kind of fill in the gaps. And that was what was so fun about that movie. And I think this second time around, because I wasn't demanding answers from it, Mm -hmm. because I had a taste for the the loveliness of ambiguity in horror. And uh, so it worked a little bit better now in a a post-It Follows world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think I loved this movie, but I had a new appreciation for it after I watched the new season of Twin Peaks, The Return. 
Hmm. Uh, Ooh, because incredible. that movie made me appreciate not understanding something and just feeling it in a way that I hadn't previously. And then mm-hmm. going back to this movie, I realized that what I enjoyed so much about this was not solving the mystery, but being immersed inside of it and enjoying the impression that created in me rather than trying to know what the ending meant specifically or what any uh, particular theory did that crack the whole code, you know, and, mm. and something about that, that was the, it's even more enjoyable walking away going, I'm happy to not know everything. Mm-hmm. It yeah. makes it more fun to discuss. I, I I've often said, cause I love David Lynch. I thought the return was just mind blowing. I, if he just came out and was like, I'm actually trolling everybody. It's not supposed to make sense. There's no answer. It's all gibberish. I would still love him just the same. Yeah. But I, I do feel he's a, uh, you know, he's David Lynch. He's tapping into something. Uh, this does uh this does feel like Twin Peaks to me mostly just because it takes place in like what I view as a cold wooded area, mm-hmm. and I love that as a cozy locale for horror. Well, he also he loves to do uh, repetitions of ideas and dialogue in his movies too. He loves to have characters that have like the uh, this weird repetition to both the the things they do in their life and also uh, with the way that they talk. You know, from film to film, he tends to revisit a lot of those themes. So when I noticed that in this film. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Sort of a little bit Lynchian. It, this actually, now that you say that, this reminds me a lot of uh, "Gotta Smoke." Mm-hmm. Gotta smoke, yeah. and, he, and it's or, a, it's a repetition of a line. Yeah, or the the moment where the one of the woodsmen goes into the actual radio station and just keeps repeating that nonsensical phrase over and over into that small town uh, in that episode. Mm-hmm. We don't exactly understand the phrase, but we kind of get the emotional impact of what it's supposed to mean, even Absolutely. if we don't understand yes, the words. Yes. Uh, I love that you made that connection. I haven't thought about the return for a little bit. It's it's left my mind, uh, but that really does connect to this. You're making me like Pontypool more, um, and having improved on the second uh, viewing, I feel like I'm, I'm I want to lean into loving it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I yeah, I have to say, all three of us that wrote the book, um, my co-writers Kathleen and especially Stephen, love this movie. But um, I introduced Stephen to this film, and I have sort of been. I guess you would call it a bit of an acolyte for this film. I, I I try to show it to anyone who has even the slightest interest in in oddball horror and hasn't heard of it. If you've heard of it, it's harder because you know what it is, even if you haven't seen it. So yeah, yeah. it's 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 such a reward when I find someone who's a fan of horror films generally who likes the oddball stuff and who doesn't know what this is. Like that's a sweet spot. And luckily, Stephen hadn't really heard of it, and I showed it to him. So I'm sure he's very happy and probably listening to this right now. Um, because he he and I both, it, that's how we met and ended up working on the book together, was that oh, we cool. both liked Magnolia and Pontypool, and sort of, uh, after talking about those, we're like, we should do something together. That's those, really cool. Those are the best relationships. That's how they start. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I just had a thought, and I lost it. Oh, what the shit. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, I gotta, I just want to put this out there for everybody. What is up with the people in Brownface singing? Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't get that. Uh, I, I mean, I have a I have a simple theory on it. I don't know. I mean, Tony Burgess was ahead of the curve on everything else. I think it's possible that he was maybe pointing out how particularly I know it's Canadian, but middle Canada, middle America, you know, like um, I would say small town white folk don't recognize how frequently offensive they are. Yeah. They think they're doing something to honor a culture, and it turns out they're doing something to insult it. Yeah, terribly. they're doing something gross. I, I was thinking something similar because because you had brought before I got yeah. before I rewatch it, you brought this up to well, me. It, it tries to play like it's funny, right? And I I couldn't find the funny, but I was like, is it a cultural thing? Is this something in Canada? But describing it as Middle America makes sense, and I think it also speaks to another just a, a wall in communication. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think some of the funny in it is actually that, like, even Grant is aware this is, like, ridiculously offensive. He rolls his eyes at it explicitly. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he he won't talk to his agent, but he'll answer the phone just so he can hold the phone up and make the agent (laughs) listen to this. Like, that's the ultimate insult. Yeah. Uh, So I think they're, like, the the comedy I do think is played from a sort of knowing that this is, like, a really bizarre, like, offensive thing for these people to be doing. Yeah. It definitely Uh, knows it. It's not, like, I didn't find it, like, offensive or tasteless or anything. I just didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's possible. Part of it feeds into one of the things this movie talks about constantly is the inherent problematic nature of something being translated from one place to another. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea that, like, uh, French wasn't dangerous to these people. Only English was, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, Lawrence of Arabia is a beautiful movie probably makes a terrible musical, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. the idea is that something that exists and is good in one state isn't necessarily, that's not necessarily true in another state or another, you know. Yeah, in another form. And and you could even argue that the movie kind of like does that for us when like the they make the connection to the BBC, right? And so now we're so the BBC is asking questions about this event. And so anybody that's listening to this broadcast on the BBC is listening to a guy that has been lying about being in a helicopter who now says he's in a barn oh, talking yeah. on his phone to Grant. And Grant is then reporting that information to the BBC. Got do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, there's more layers. Of, yeah, like, it's it's all these them. layers of removal. By the time you get to being a listener on the BBC yeah, or it's, whatever, it's so divorced from d- direct communication. Right. So you lose that. It's a, a purple monkey dishwasher. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. But what's it? Uh, Whisper down the Whisper lane. Down the so lane. that was a Simpsons reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, another thing I think is interesting is that. Um, it, it's also filmically sort of showing its cards to us by doing that, by telling us that Ken Loney's not in the Sunshine Chopper, mm-hmm. that he's sitting in his Dodge Dart on the hill looking down on town. Um, but she, at the same time, she says the people out there are happy and they feel safe knowing that he's up there. And in a way, what that right. sounds like to me is they know he's not up there in the sky. Yes. They know he's up there on the hill, but they like the illusion. And to a degree, that's what this movie is all about. This movie was shot in a basement for the most part, but it's a film mm-hmm. about what becomes essentially a global pandemic. And right. I think in a, some way, Bruce McDonald is tipping his hat to the idea that I'm playing, I'm playing old time Orson Welles radio tricks on you, but you know that I am. And so we can both enjoy that we've engaged in this together. I, like a magician, I'm doing this trick and you're aware that it's a trick, but you still like what I'm doing with it. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I am obsessed. I go down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. I don't believe a single one, but I just, I fucking love the story <laughs> so much. And I, and I crave that, even though I know that it's untruths. Well, conspiracy theorists would love the opening of this film, where he talks about Norman Mailer's theory that when a tragedy happens, the world like elastically bends around in reality a little bit, so that things that suddenly our weird connections become true, even though they maybe weren't before the tragedy happened. Mm -hmm. I almost believe that to be the case. (laughs) There's just a rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think that the real killer of Kennedy... What? No, I'm not (laughs) going (laughs) to... I read a conspiracy theory, though, that uh, someone said that they believe that uh, Kennedy was not shot, but that his head just did that. And I think that's my favorite conspiracy theory ever is that spontaneous head explosion was the end of Kennedy. That's well, a funny way to phrase that. His head just, <laughs> it did, just that. did that. It just exploded. Well, now that we've seen Pontypool, we know that that can happen. That happened to <laughs> Laurel Ann. That is very true. Oh, man. That is. Yeah. So, okay. So you were talking a little bit about like the puzzle box of this movie. And and I, I found that interesting because I do think this movie 
is a little puzzly, but uh, the way you're describing it, I'm, I, I suspect that it maybe is it's even... It's that ambiguity. It's, it's more, fun. Right. It's maybe even more puzzly than I realize. For instance, before we started recording, I said to Dan, and tell me if this is a dumb question to you, Chris. I said to Dan, I said, okay, has Grant Mazzy been working at this radio station for years? Or... Is it his first day and he just got fired from like the big city job and this is like his first day at the new station? I feel like the movie almost plays it both ways depending on which scene we're in. He seems to have this like established relationship with the producer that I can't imagine he'd have if he were that early on the job. But then there's also all this other stuff where he doesn't even seem to know anything about the town that he's broadcasting from. Pontypool, he needs to have it described to him, you know? But then he also calls it Pontypool, my Pontypool, as if he's been broadcasting from here all along you know it's like i feel like it's his first week yeah but yeah I, 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 I would say on the outside edge it was you know two three weeks um i mean obviously it could be a little longer because he is certainly self-absorbed enough not to know much about his community <laughs> um, i like that yeah that's a good explanation i like that but at, but at the same time i do think it hasn't been that long and uh, one of the ways that you know that is that he hints at the idea of like he does the news every day and this is a small town he would know if those two guys where one of them was her brother-in-law and he was an alcoholic, right? If they'd had mm-hmm, more than mm-hmm. a week's worth of conversations and he was talking about law enforcement, that right. would have come up, right? So I, I feel like, yeah, they're in the they're in the window where Grant is uh, still new, but not so new that he's being polite. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, that, that feels right. That makes sense. But I feel like this a little bit plays into this idea that like the movie does exist in, in what would you call it, like a liminal space? Like it, it they're... You know, we never really see beyond the snow of Pontypool, yeah. right? We know, you it's know, it's a trapped in a small space movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But even that that space itself is like, I don't know, exists a little bit out of like time and locale, and right? It's like it it just is kind of yeah, it disconnected. Really take place in, in any, it just takes place in present. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, do the math on how many people we saw aside from the main, I guess you could say four if we include the doctor. Sure, it's right. literally, you could count them all on one hand, mm-hmm. and almost every one of them is, uh, I guess you would call it sort of like a, an entirely unimportant character. They're like literally one step above an extra, yeah, and it yeah. feels intentional on that part. The woman that we see at the very beginning that gives us the first hint that something is weird, mm-hmm. the people that come in for the um, to sing you know, to yep. do the Lawrence of Arabia performance. And then basically everybody else is uh, the zombie extras wandering around, or I guess you could call them zombies, whatever they are, wandering yeah. around for four minutes of screen time. And that's mm-hmm. literally everybody that we see. And yeah. everything else, I think almost every exterior shot you see, uh, it disappears into black before you see anything, right? So yep. the woman, when she backs away, she backs into the black and we don't see beyond her. When he yep. steps outside, just before he has to run back inside because all the people show up, all we see is sort of snow disappearing into black. It's yeah. almost like you could theoretically believe that this is a Twilight Zone episode, and if you walked yeah. farther enough, he would stop existing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do Is there, now, just correct me, is there an actual image of a horde of zombies emerging from that black? I'm trying to picture it in my head, and I don't know if it's in the movie or if it was just so well put together that it put that image in my head. No, that's the, uh, yeah, that's the Bambi's mother getting shot syndrome there. No, there was, all yeah. you saw was Laurel Ann pulling him back and shutting the door, and it was from outside pointed at them. And then once the door slams, then we start to hear the pounding and the shaking of the doors That's and the voices. Yeah, they do a it really. The sound made me imagine it because I can picture it clear as day. Yeah, a horde of them emerging, and it just did not happen. And they do the Kudos. great classic, like um, you know, the the shadows of hands and arms oh, out the windows fantastic. and stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the I think the most brilliant thing that this movie did was uh. It, it it wasn't just talking about the importance of words and sound. This film does not work 
without the execute the perfect execution of the soundscape of this film oh yeah yeah i agree i actually like the opening of it where where that you were just describing where where um grant's kind of monologuing a little bit um i i had trouble like hearing him and i was like oh no like what's going on and then i realized like oh right that's i forgot that that's a little bit this movie is like there's like a cacophony of sound throughout this movie and there are mm-hmm. times where I think we're meant to struggle with like which piece we're meant to be listening to and hearing at different times, you know? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I don't know if you noticed how much of the story is about a person not listening to someone else or a person not understanding someone else. mm -hmm. And it's like McDonald tried to do the same thing to the audience. He's like, he wanted them to feel like one of the characters in that, even if we're hearing them, we don't quite hear them clear enough to understand them fully. You know, like the doctor Mm -hmm. will speak a few words in English and then a few words in, I think it's Spanish maybe or Portuguese. Um, And then it would be maybe some gibberish. And then he would say the word breathe a bunch of times. It was, Mm -hmm. it was as if the writer and the director were trying to keep us uh, constantly off balance, like Mm -hmm. not, we didn't have anything to hold on to because even when we're getting an explanation, it's coming from, a crazy guy who also speaks another language and and we heard earlier was maybe he got in trouble for giving out uh, prescriptions he wasn't supposed to so like yeah, yeah. it's completely unreliable yeah, everything we're getting is crazy and unreliable and it's That's kind of cool. genius mm-hmm. like a, yeah a movie about barriers between communication intentionally puts a barrier between itself and the audience yeah that's fantastic yeah and i mean even when you get to the finale of like what grant supposedly figures out as like a cure for this or whatever is like shrug like yeah maybe yeah it's maybe, more maybe it's that's intentional miscommunication uh, yeah yeah well and and like is that even is that even really what's happening you know what i mean yeah it's is like it even got, working he's got one example of this very nebulous tenuous definition he's given it yeah. working you know what i mean like yeah it's yeah. anecdotal at this yeah, point yeah, yeah. well i yes on first and maybe second viewing but i as the lunatic who has watched this film oh, 16 oh, or 17 please. times bust it open um i believe do you remember the moment where it seemed like grant was going a little bit crazy in the booth yes he was hearing yes. his voice right yeah he this, screams and he's yeah. yeah this is my supposition uh in much the same way that every one of the other characters got hooked on a word, you know, like that's the theory you, you hear a word. And when you start to understand that word, that's when it starts to take you over. Mm-hmm. And you know how he had to use that. Uh, he had to convince Sydney that a word meant something else to get her out of it. Mm-hmm. I think that happened accidentally without intent of any of the characters doing it in that moment when he mm. was talking about the voice of the baby coming from the person on the phone. Mm-hmm. The word baby is a term of endearment, which they said to stay away from. Mm-hmm. He heard the word baby. Then he started hearing a voice talking to him, right? As he was talking about the idea of a baby. Um, and I think what snapped him out of it, because he got hooked on this this term of endearment, and he started hearing the voice. And I think he started going a little loopy. You know what? And the next thing that Sydney said to him was, they found Honey the cat, right? Honey the missing cat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Honey mm-hmm. the cat was the thing he had. And I, this is hard to explain, but I think what broke it was that the term of endearment honey took on a different meaning, right? It doesn't mean an interior of endearment. It's the name of a cat that he talked about earlier and that snapped him out of it. So he had accidentally already discovered the cure earlier and we witnessed it happen so that later when it does work, it's sort of secretly proof that his method was He may have found it accidentally, but it definitely was true. Chris, this <laughs> genuinely helps me with so much of this movie because there are distinctly like two or three scenes in this movie that a little bit take me out of it. And one of them is Grant's freak initial freak out because I had trouble both times I watched it 
putting that in context with the rest of the movie. This is 4D chess, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. I, I had trouble finding context for why Grant was experiencing that in the movie because the movie it happens and then the movie sort of allows it to happen, pass, and then doesn't really bring it back up. Or yeah, at yeah. least I thought it didn't bring it back up. Yeah, because well, in my head I was going, was he infected? I guess he wasn't. Right, yeah. And yeah, I mean, out. it's shockingly effective in the in the fact that McDonald and Burgess were both comfortable with possibly assuming the audience will never get that moment. Right. Unless they've watched this movie 10 times, they will never get that that's what just happened. And that's right. the thing I love about this movie is that, it, can you imagine the the, like you said, the game of 4D chess they were playing to think, I don't know, Maybe our audience will never catch on to this thing. It's cool and we know it, but you know, yeah. it's it's amazing to me that they were that comfortable. Like when we watch Hollywood films and we see how hard they have to remind you, oh, this person is poor and they need money, right? Like they have to work yeah, yeah, so yeah, hard yeah. to tell you a simple plot. And then the, you watch this and you go, oh my God, it was viewing 11 before I realized that's what was going on. Yeah, that is incredible. I don't think I ever would have picked that I up. I don't think so either. I was probably going to watch this movie not a ton more times, but yeah. maybe just a few. I don't think I'd ever get there. That's incredible. Yeah, that's like, oh my no, god! I, I, I promise you, my it, the inside of my brain after having watched twelve Pawnee pools, uh, <laughs> watching Pawnee pool twelve times is is a messy place. You know, like I'm seeing, you know, all of the uh, the the puns that he puts in, the, even that aren't an intentional. You know, the use of the word yeah, drum yeah. so many times. The place is located on Drum Street. He says, "Bang the drum." Laurel Ann's last name is Drummond, right? Like he's he's toying Whoa. with the idea of of the like you know, like that elasticity yeah, of repetition. the world. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. incredible. I, and you know, it's crazy. Now I'm probably going to watch this twelve more times. Yeah, I, this is fascinating. <laughs> uh, this is going to be one of those movies that I put on and I'm like yelling at my girlfriend, like you have to look, you have to look. Put your phone down. You need to pay attention to this. <laughs> it's going to be in like Bird Box, right? Like you're trying to make yeah. them open their eyes and see it. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So then there's another moment a little a little later in the movie where. Grant has another meltdown and it's another place where the movie loses me a little bit because I, I think, I don't know if it's like, I feel like maybe that meltdown that Grant has strikes me as like, I don't know. It feels incongruous with what I know about his character up to that point in the movie, which doesn't necessarily mean the character couldn't Can take a turn like that. But, so he eventually decides like, Oh fuck it. I got to get out of here. Like I fuck this. I'm le I'm just leaving. I'm okay. just going. Yeah, I need yeah. a break. I need to take a breather. I'm getting out. Um, and he, he's like, he's very rude in those moments to the other characters. Yeah. He, he literally yells, you're fucking with me. Stop fucking with me. Right. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. About? yeah. 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 He's like, he's very rude to the other characters in ways that he's not previous in the movie. Yeah. It, he's it, more cold as opposed to aggressively rude. Yeah. And yeah, he, and right. he also, you know, early in the movie strikes me as a, you know, uh, I, 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 He's not similar enough for me to make this comparison, but he's just similar enough for me to make this comparison. Like, like an Alex Jones type character, like yeah. a, like a, a high on his own supply, like a little bit, um, he's heightened well, he, the version he plays of himself. He's on the a radio grimier is, Art Bell. If you're familiar with Art okay, Bell. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I would have, I, I would have said Don Imus, but yeah, I can see where yes. it comes oh, Don from. Don Imus is great. Yeah. Yes. Don Imus is a great example. Um, it just, yeah, I don't know. It, he the, is radio man. Yeah. Yeah. And so for him to suddenly, all of a sudden be like, wait, actually I'm panicking and I'm having such a panic attack about this. I'm going to be like, like rude in a way that appears to me to be uncharacteristic of him. It seemed, I don't know. It seemed outside the purview. I, I, but again, it's like, that's, we spend what 
literally two hours with these characters. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, it's maybe unfair of me to say like, oh, that's out of character for him because what do I know about him, you know? Yeah. Um, but well, for but me, yeah, I don't, what do you think about that, Chris? I'm, I'm I mean, curious. The purpose that it serves for me, whether it's, I, I feel like you could say it's organic to his character or not. The purpose that it serves in the larger picture is that he is the one person in the room. Well, I guess you could argue him and Sydney both are mm-hmm. to some degree unflappable about the things that are coming at them, right? Yes. So, yeah. We need to see both of those characters break in order to understand how serious this becomes. Okay. And I feel like each of them has that moment. That's his. Do, and it, yeah. his comes out of anger. Hers is the moment she's talking to her daughter on the phone. And we yeah. basically watch her literally sort of devolve into singing a child song to her daughter and then basically falling into, you know, a crying mess. And I feel yeah. like both of those moments are necessary because both of those characters have to be uh have to be broken in some way for us to believe genuinely believe that this uh is really happening because we didn't uh, keep in mind we've never seen anything right right we saw a doctor crawl through the window we saw some people yelling outside but we we have no uh, like I, I jokingly say it but like you know ken loney the pedophile in the dodge dart we think he's in the sunshine chopper right like right, we don't right. have any proof that any of this is happening so when he yells you're fucking with me it's he he becomes an audience surrogate in some ways yeah. right um how much of what you have told us as filmmakers can we believe as an audience? And I feel like mm-hmm. in some ways he's standing in for us in that moment. That makes sense. I me. will say the first time I watched it, I was like, I wonder if like the twist to this movie will be that it's all a prank on him right. or something like that. Thank God it wasn't because that would have been yeah. stupid. But uh, <laughs> it's yeah, that was that was one of my thoughts that I had. So that makes sense because I probably was feeling similarly at that moment. Yeah, I guess that it's possible that my reaction this time is um fueled by it being a second viewing right where it's like i i, I know that this is happening you yeah, know what so I mean? or, inspect yeah, the yeah, formula. yeah 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 but there and is to no be fair <laughs> to be fair though i've watched this so many times that it's possible i'm like the guy hunting the zodiac killer at this point uh, where i believe that i've got all the clues figured out you know like i'm i'm the guy that's like oh the clue in the opening when he's talking to his agent and he's angry underneath that you can hear the audio of him reading the obits because his career is dead right like I, i'm uh, <laughs> Who knows if that's what they intended, but that's, yeah. you know what I mean? You watch this enough times, you can see thousands of levels to this. I'm, that's how it follows this with me. I have that movie cracked wide the fuck open. This is, <laughs> it's, it's madness. This is yeah. me and the guest. I, I, oh, I, yeah. I've written, I don't know, eight reviews of the guest at this point, And I've gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into this theory that it's actually the, the brother. Your final review is just going to be, I am the guest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. And, but it's, I know what you're saying, Chris. It's like, I'm now so convinced of, my conspiracy theory about what all these details yeah, add yeah. up to and mean that I have found maybe tangential connections between between things among them. You know? Yeah, for sure. Which is why I like talking about this movie with other people so much because yeah. at a certain point, like I'm so laser focused into this thing that it I, maybe I need a you know a breath of fresh air every once in a while. Sure, or a little validation that like yeah. you know somebody else brings one of those things up and you're like, okay, thank God that was not. Let's, let's talk about it though. I, I I have a question here, not even a question, just an observation I had this time about the way that the infection spreads. Yeah, um, it seems that, as I understand it, excuse me, I had to burp. Um, <laughs> as I understand it, the infected person then has to infect another person. There has to be another connection mm. made or else they do what, um, now I'm forgetting her name did. And, you know, Laurel Ann. Laurel Ann. Ann, that's it. And um, I, to this this time around watching it, I was like, oh, that feels very social media-y to mm-hmm. me where it's like we put stuff out there with the sole purpose of just someone else latching on to that. You share, know, just share, yeah. share, 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 share. Yeah. Connectivity. And it's good and bad, but this disease sort of follows that pattern. And I don't know. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, well, in 2008, social media wasn't huge. But one thing that was huge at the time was terrestrial AM political radio, right? And the first thing I think of when I watch this movie is the people outside mindlessly chanting things and they don't even know what they mean. And how many times have you had a conversation with someone who has very strong political beliefs Mm -hmm. and you hear a very specific phrase that has been parroted by uh, some sort of a political figure of some kind, right? And they've turned that phrase into a catchphrase that then those people, they like the way it sounds, they like the way it feels in their heart and their mind and their mouth and they just say it, right? And they're Are you not saying even you've met my dad. <laughs> uh, we, we've all met your dad. In spirit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the first thing I thought of when I thought of that idea of not only that it um, that it gets inside. Right. And it gets whole literally like a virus in some ways. But the whole purpose of talk radio designing things in sound bites or even news designing things in sound bites is because you don't just want to get the person that's paying attention. You want them to to infect someone else right yeah you want them to that's do very the interesting yeah so wait but but help me put this together though right because the plot of the movie is that you have to understand the thing in order for it to that's when it hooks you right so but like then if, you lose understanding and it becomes a, oh a interesting yeah. yeah i mean obviously the metaphor is a little wonky and i i would argue that if I, if you asked tony burgess this he would say no it's about nonsense but right um, okay i think he would say that because much like uh tolkien didn't want to cop to the one thing that the ring stands for in the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he's making a metaphor for uh, for generations, plural, right? Like he's making the metaphor mm. for whatever the next thing is that's going to be that, that's what it is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I buy into that. Have you uh, Have you read the book? I have not. Believe it or not, I've interviewed the, the, the writer of the book for the film and I have screened the film 15, 16 times. I've done intros oh, right to it, on. but I never read the book. And I'll be honest, there's two things I've never done. I never read the book. And there is, if you if you buy the DVD, which of course I own because it's streaming almost nowhere. Um, yeah. If you buy the DVD, there is a commentary on there by oh. Tony Burgess and Bruce McDonald. Right I on. have intentionally, I've owned it for years. I have intentionally not listened to that commentary. Very Why is that? This is going to sound crazy, but the truth is I'm afraid that someone's going to accidentally give me a definitive answer to a thing I don't want a definitive answer to in this movie. I, yeah. I, I I can uh, I will relate that I I I do so I keep referring to this movie the guest I don't know if you've seen oh, that of movie course. or not yes yeah so um I, I love that movie and I have a very specific theory of who I think uh, David actually I've is I've started to buy your theory based on your passion alone but yeah it's pretty airtight I, and I I think it is and I did finally hear Simon Barrett at some point in an interview somebody was like hey this theory keeps coming up like what do you think of it he's like I love this theory. There's certainly a lot in the movie that I think like can help you add up that theory. We didn't write that. Like mm-hmm. he very definitively was uh, like, we that's not what we I wrote. I wish you just said maybe. Right, I know. And it's like and and so I could what I can say to you, Chris, is it does I still get a lot of enjoyment out of what I think about the guest. There is a little bit of something deflating about realizing like I, I still don't know what it is, yeah, you're in a rabbit but hole. I know what it's not. And yeah, I, that yeah. isn't helpful either. You know, well, yeah, I don't like I mean, that either. But maybe Nobody he's just wants... saying that. Maybe it's his policy is Could to be. deny everything. Could be. Could, Could be. be, yeah. I mean, honestly, we don't want Tarantino to definitively say what's glowing in the briefcase, right? In Pulp Fiction. Right, like right. Something about that is it's more magical. This is what I meant when I watched Twin Peaks The Return. It sort of cracked my brain open to filmmaking is far more magical when sometimes you don't have an answer. Because... Mm-hmm. 
it will exist in your head forever like that now. And in some ways, that's more beautiful than being given an answer. I think the tyranny of story and narrative that has come about because of the popularity of mainstream film, I think has kind of started to destroy that in us a little bit. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we see the pushback that we do in franchises that try new and different things is because people want a thing that they understand. They want to be able to unpack it easily and they want everything in the movie to be explained to them. And if it's not explained, they think it's, it's unexplainable instead of just not explained. Oh, that's yeah. That's, I love the way you just phrased that. You rule, man. That yeah. was <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. And um, we did. We actually had a, a movie that we did on our last episode. We did Car Wash. Yeah. And one of the things that resonated about Car Wash is that it doesn't really come to a conclusion for any of the characters. Right. It leaves it open. But that ends that ends up being what anchors that movie so so well for me. And it is that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And if they made Car Wash now, uh, it would very much complete everybody's arc in a way that's satisfying right, and right. as resonant as can yeah. be and complete and boopy doopy doop yeah we'd know that everybody was going off to college by the end right yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah no for sure it's gonna be okay yeah 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 it's it's depressing in some ways but in the in other ways it makes the things that don't do that that are decidedly anti that yeah so much more pleasurable as a result yes. of being uh such a small group you know I, I agree it's like you know something like i mean I, this is almost maybe too fantastical an example but like something like the lighthouse last year i think oh, is a very man. delicious example of this right where it's like that that movie is almost delicious delicious example of this <laughs> it, it, it really is because it's like that movie is as good as it is because it came out when it did right it's like yeah. because it comes out in this drought of mm-hmm. of movies that let you just i don't know sit inside of them and and experience them and leave the theater and yeah, then just walk are. home and fucking figure out why you felt how you felt you know what i mean same director when i saw the witch i saw it opening night and it got booed and i couldn't believe it yeah yeah. people were booing and like being like fuck that movie on the way out i i can't believe that because i was like i just had a transcendent experience yeah 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 yeah, and they rejected the idea of we don't have an answer right yeah no well when uh when a sequel book to spoiler alert comes out next time and you guys have me back on as i will demand um we'll have to watch have you guys seen upstream color oh like if you that, look back on our episodes, we have an interview with Andrew Sensenig, one of the stars of Upstream Colors. Yes. Oh my God, I did not know that. No, I'm gonna yes, have. To, I'm now gonna have out. to go back. I didn't. Yeah. I haven't been listening that long. Oh, that's fine. Right. So okay. It's a deep cut. It, it's it's like deep back in our catalog. You might have to go to our like Libsyn page to find it because it's like super far back there. But it's worth listening to. We love Upstream Color. We're big Shane Carruth fans. Um, yeah. I, it is a huge disappointment to me that. There are only two Shane Carruth movies to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, then again, you could talk about Primer for 100 years and never crack it. That's true. Yeah. And by the way, at 77 minutes, he created that much mystery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But and and uh, yeah, to, we had a, a feel free. To, I mean, I hope you listen to that episode because I did that. That movie is one of those great movies where it was like we well, talked. For, makes it magic. Yeah, yeah, we talked for two hours about it. We probably could have talked for four more hours about it. And, and I don't know, we had the, I, I still like remember that conversation and it was six years ago now, like, yeah, in in, like quite a bit of detail because that movie really does, it's got enough detail. It's it's what I love about the guest. It's got enough details for you to have a very detailed, intense conversation Mm -hmm. about it and still not know if you're right or you're wrong or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and like I I love it, but like when you look at something like Avengers Endgame, I feel like the conversation comes down to like, well, they they sure did it, didn't they? Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. They they got it done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I also watched the movie where those goes. exact events happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right on. Yep. They did it. Yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> we all shared a communal moment where something they've been planning for 10 years went off. Yes. You know, like that you sort know, of... And I love it when a plan comes together, but it yeah. isn't as lasting as upstream color. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Oh, for sure. No, it's... reference for you guys. <laughs> Another thing that left a lot of questions in my life, because when, yes. uh, when it was on, my parents made me go to bed at 830. So oh, I only no. ever got to the point where they started building the badass truck with the guns on it that it was going to save all the local townsfolk. And then they made me go to bed. So I never saw how an episode of 18. Well, you know, if, the, if, that's the worst set of like cinematic blue balls I can imagine. But yeah. if, Stripes oh, is, oh. if Stripes has taught us anything, it's that by the time they build the truck, like that's when it stops getting exciting. <laughs> it's true. after that. It's it's nonsense. Yeah, that is a little turn for sure. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe. So far as I know, it's the most amazing thing imaginable. And the thing is, yeah, right. I've, I almost never go back now to especially the stuff I've seen as a child because, you know, you don't have the goggles of nostalgia on anymore. And yeah. God knows what kind of garbage it'll look like. But, uh, but yeah, no, so, so I have AT, uh, the A-Team mystery to be able to relish for the rest of my life because I never saw how poorly the episodes ended. There oh, you yeah, go. They great. probably did end poorly. I didn't watch a lot of A-Team. I just saw that stupid movie. I did see that movie. I saw that movie. Actually, that was a fun movie. Was saw, you know, I saw it at a double feature at the drive-in with Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And Scott Pilgrim vs. Oh, the yeah. World is a great, fun movie. Yeah. The A-Team is a movie that played after Scott Pilgrim versus the movie at the drive-in. That's actually that's what happened to the guest for me. The guest I loved. Yeah, yeah. But the first time I watched it, I couldn't love it as hard because I had literally just seen It Follows about 20 minutes before I it. Remember ended. that. And so look at that. Yeah, yeah it sounds like the night I went to I was supposed to see 12 Monkeys and uh Ooh. it was I had to wait a while because it was a later screening. So mm-hmm. they were like the other friends I was with they were like, you want to see something else? And we went and saw From Dusk Till Dawn first. <laughs> oh my oh, god. And, both fantastic movies, but you can't watch Twelve Monkeys after you just finished From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's a it's a little high key for you to follow that up with what starts as a very quiet science fiction yeah, uh, film. Yes. Yeah, that's what. And actually, uh, we're very close to where most of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Twelve Monkeys was shot, right yeah. where we sit right now. See, yeah. guys, it all comes together. The connections together, <laughs> like a plan. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I was going to say that uh, both of those movies are, are pretty good examples. One of them more than the other of what you were talking about earlier, where a movie that just becomes a totally different kind of movie as you get further into it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, from Dust Till Dawn, Tarantino originally he didn't have the pull that he has now, or he would have been able to do this. He wanted to market the movie as a crime drama and only yep. show clips from the first 40 minutes. Totally makes sense to me. So you have no idea. I'm for a movie to yeah. do that. Yeah. I, I am waiting for a, the last time. I, and I, I, I won't describe what happens. Sure. The last time I saw a movie that did that was an old Takashi Miike film okay. called Dead or Alive. Oh, yes. And it's a gangster drama until it's not. But yeah. I don't want to say anything else. So you can I'm a little it. familiar. It's not like the greatest yeah. movie in the world, but it's a crazy thing. But I, I crave a movie. The last time it came close was maybe Split. Oh, sure. Split was just yeah. like, oh, by the way, we're a sequel to Unbreakable. Yeah. You know, that was cool, but that's more just... Um, Kill List grand. did that pretty effectively. Oh, yes. Kill what List? Kill List? Oh, the, Kill uh, List did do that effectively. Uh, ben Wheatley, right? Ben yep. Wheatley. Yeah, yeah. And Michael Smiley. <laughs> he has the best name of any actor. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kill List is very good. And you're right. It does Trojan Horse very well, I think. Um, but uh, I, I'm dying for a movie that, like, sells me on, like... Like, I, uh, you know, something, you know how the other guys has that subplot about like the cooler cops in the yeah, cooler yeah. cop movie. I'm dying to get the movie that sells me that movie and turns out to be the other guy. You yeah, know what I mean? That'd be cool. Where those two characters turn out to die five minutes into the movie. Like the, the two characters that are the leads in the trailers are just dead five minutes into the movie. And it's an yeah. entirely different movie. They sort of did that with Scream, but I, That's I think true. that, that yeah. beat us well, to it, though. J.J. Abrams tried to do that for you with Lost. They were originally going to cast Michael Keaton as Jack. That's right. And he I was going to die that. at the end of the pilot, and he yeah. would, they, nobody's going to say anything until it premiered. 
And yeah, uh, we would have thought, so oh cool. my God, big star Michael Keaton is in his first television role, and then he's dead in an hour. <laughs> and he's gone. Yeah. And then at that point, he was probably like, listen, I need a job. Can I please be back on the show? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think what they told him was, uh, uh, you know, of course, this is the era of uh, television at the time. They were like, you can't kill off the only white guy that speaks English. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Well, Michael Keaton's not going to sign on to a series, so I guess we got to cast somebody else. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so, oh, wait, I, I had a good. Uh... I lost it. I lost it. Were you gonna Were you gonna tie us right back into the Ponty? I was gonna pools? tie us back. Oh, I wanted to talk about in po- the thing that I love about Pontypool the most, and this is my favorite type of horror setting. I really like cozy on the inside, all hell breaking loose on the outside. Mm-hmm. The thing has elements of yep. it. A movie that we saw last year, The Vast of Night. Yes, um, had it, I just really love. I, I love being snowed in, mm-hmm. and I love Hateful a movie Eight. that gives me a snow. Uh, Hateful Eight is a great example. Of a movie that gives it's literally snowed in, a yeah. snowed in feeling. Mm-hmm. Fargo has that feeling, yeah. and I feel that in Pontypool, mm-hmm. and I am so enchanted by that that even if this movie was garbage, I would still love it on account of it gives me that feeling. Yeah, it's what you're describing the sort of the ch- the chamber, whatever you call it, chamber drama or chamber oh, yeah. horror. Um, yeah. It was one of the genres that we worked on so hard when we wanted to do spoiler alert because it's it's mine and Steven's favorite, and Kathy also loves them. The um, we call it sort of like the the six guys in a room. You know what I mean? And it, yeah. and yes. it for us it's less about like does does there need to be chaos on the outside so much as what's the interpersonal dynamic in the room uh so it goes everything from 12 angry men all the way down to like exam to pony pool but the problem can I, was can i was, assume that you're a fan of uh cube chris you a, oh a fan of cube uh yeah well, it's, it's one of the featured films in our in our book about it in science fiction we talk about right uh, i thought it yeah. might have been i almost asked earlier when you brought that up Oh yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, as an independent filmmaker, yes. I think the reason I like them so much is because it makes me feel like I could do it. And when they do a good Agreed. job with it, it's inspiring. But yeah, we could never crack it for the book because all the genres that we covered in the book, first of all, are tropes and cliches. You know what I mean? Yes. They're, the, they're the funny, ridiculous ones. But also, a chamber story can be in any genre. You can I was just going to say- Great chamber drama, great chamber horror. So it was hard to crack. has a trapped in a small space episode. Yeah, I yeah. mean, literally That's a bottle everyone. episode, yeah. Yeah. And that I was going to say, it's like I from so you, you have this this book spoiler alert, which this is a great transition to just give us a minute to talk about it. The the format of the book, which is so brilliant, is just like every page is six panels of the tropes of a movie. Right. So it's like act one of a slasher movie. It almost feels like a recipe book. Yeah. Where it's like, here's your ingredients. <laughs> here's the order of it. Yeah. Now you have that movie. It, it it is like it's almost like a great writing tool that's also designed like a great like coffee table infographic book. Like it's I really loved it, Chris. It's like it, I'm I'm probably gonna get myself a copy because I was just like so delighted by it. Um, but what I as you were describing that, I was like, yeah, I could just see doing any of the what is it? I think there's like are there thirty of them in the in the book? There, there's thirty eight. It was originally gonna be fifty, right. and then we got we 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 put twelve uh, in the burner for the second book if it goes well, just because we wanted to get to a certain page and price count. I like oh, that. Right on. I like that. Well, we gotta uh, push this because yeah. I want that second. I want that second book. I, but <laughs> it, you're absolutely right. It's like a, a chamber, like Cube is a chamber movie, like you're describing. But it would fit better. You you would describe it as a science fiction movie, right? You know, well, it, Sleuth. Um, Sleuth is a chamber movie, but that's absolutely <laughs> a, a sort of a mystery. You know, yeah. Sleuth I, is top ten for me. I oh man, I love Sleuth. Yeah, uh, that that's one of those movies. By the way, if you, I'm sure you guys probably have, but for anybody who hasn't watched them, make sure you're seeing the one with young Michael Caine, not yes. old Michael Caine. <laughs> oh man, I forgot that that's a thing you have to worry about when that trying was, uh, to decide on sleep. 
that um Branagh made that Kenneth Branagh I believe I think yeah. so and I think Pinter wrote the script it seems like it, it should have been a home run and it was <laughs> a but I, I remember watching it and being like yeah this is fine you know like it works but you know it's just such a pale pale yeah. comparison but yeah actually like the, um, said, the sailor puppet in Sleuth makes a small cameo appearance in Knives Out oh yeah you can feel the vibe of of uh sleuth hanging heavy over knives out it's oh, absolutely. Um, i mean obviously I, I i love ryan johnson and it's clear that not only did he have a lot of influences from a lot of places but also a fantastically original uh way of concluding it but even mm. if you listen to the episode of pure cinema where he talks about his favorite movies in that genre it's clear when he discusses them uh what sort of um, emotional baggage he was bringing from those films that ends up in knives out in really interesting mm-hmm. ways I would like to check that out. Yeah, he's fascinating. I, I'm I'm fascinated by him. He's like a very interesting uh, screenwriter, I think. Um, but uh, he, you go ahead. I was just going to say he he does something that I think McDonald does really well, which is he loves to play in the sandbox of genre. He likes to take mm-hmm. something that you you feel like you know very specifically, so that he can hand you some of the things you know and lead you down a path to think you're heading in a specific way, only to be able to brilliantly and very effectively completely reverse your expectations um and that's not an easy thing to do because it has to be entertaining until the point that it also reverses so he has to be able to be good at coming up with what would be the cliche what would be the expectation and then also how to build towards the thing that will subvert that expectation at the same time yeah that's really interesting because that i mean that that is like uh, you know every article about ryan johnson movies over the last year has literally been about that how that's exactly what he does is he he gets to know a genre so well that he can put you in a place where you're like yeah i know what i'm into and then you know i'm what i know what i'm in for yeah, and Luke then now you're on a now you're at the the farmhouse in the third yeah. act and, and well, akira has started in the finale of the <laughs> yeah, travel yeah. movie you know and it's it's the reason why i think there was such virulent backlash to his star wars film yeah. because while it is a uh, it's a fantastic movie i love the film and i actually it's my second favorite star wars film yeah. it is not a star wars film in any of the traditional senses that a star wars film usually is mm-hmm. and that makes people mad like we were talking about earlier you know you want the box with new wrapping but you still want it to be that box you know yeah 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 i mean it's so funny because that movie not to totally dive into that but like you know it's influenced by a lot of really interesting stuff that on one hand, I want to go like, yeah, all star Wars is influenced by these old samurai movies that are about the old master. And uh, they're, they're all sort of influenced by these old like nautical stories of like warfare on the sea. But then it's like, you think about it and it's like, that's not really the way Lucas depicted any, even if he was influenced by those things, he wasn't depicting them in the ways they're depicted in those movies. And Johnson really goes hard at like, no, this is straight up a like, a, an old master who rejects the new student samurai movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He, it's hands down my favorite Star Wars. I'm yeah, not ashamed it. to say it. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, like I, I think the good analogy is that uh, people like Lucas and other p- filmmakers who have worked in the Star Wars universe and done great work are the tourists and he is the local. Ryan Johnson yeah, is the yeah, local, yeah. right? Like right. He, he studied up samurai films and said, okay, well, here's an aspect of samurai cinema you guys have never touched. Right. Where can we go with this? Or it's like you yeah. said, nautical cinema or whatever, whatever the influence, the original influence was, he decided to go back to that influence and go, well, what else is there that you didn't really scratch the surface of? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it makes it such like an exciting Star Wars movie too, by doing yeah. those things, I think, you mm-hmm. know, it, to me, it feels like it has the DNA of Star Wars because it's doing that, but then, it's also, it feels exciting and new. Well, I feel like we glossed over it a little bit. So can you just tell our audience, tell us about your book. Oh, yeah, tell yeah, us about yeah. Spoiler oh. alert. 
Sure. Well, I normally wait till about 57 minutes into a conversation before I bring it up. So, <laughs> And we're going to come back to the post-credit sequence yes. of uh, Pontypool. I haven't, yes. I haven't forgotten. We have not forgotten about but it. But um, since we brought up the book, I would love to hear more about it before it's before it's when our listeners turn it off and go to bed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So the book is called Spoiler Alert, The Badass Book of Movie Plots. And uh, it's a, it's written by me, uh, Kathleen Killian Fernandez, and Stephen Espinosa. We worked on it together. Um, I guess you would call it, if you had to describe it, the art style, it's sort of, I guess you would call it infographic style. It's a mm-hmm. simple art style. And the premise of the book is we thought what would be really funny is if what if what if a bunch of hack screenwriters just wanted the simplest way to assemble a script? Mm-hmm. Like what would they want from you? And so we thought, well, wh- why don't we make well when we originally called it, it was called the big book of movie templates. And mm-hmm. the joke was this plug this in, change the names of the stuff, you know put it in a different city and then you've got your hack script you know but yep. then what, what we realized is as we wrote about it it wasn't as cynical as we thought because the thing is we kind of like movies with cliches and tropes they're enjoyable i watch mm-hmm. a lot of slasher movies and the things Me i too. like the most about them often are the tropes and the cliches right yeah so it became more of a, like a, a loving homage to the necessity for genres that have become popular to cannibalize themselves yeah. um and so basically we have the one page that's like, here's, uh, here's your stats, right? Here's the characters you need. Here's the locations you need, the props, this sort of thing. And then we would do three acts and a splash page because everybody has to have, you know, whatever your, whatever your big set piece is, is our splash page. But yeah. it's three acts and we basically just cover what are the big six tropes of act one of the romantic comedy or mm-hmm. the heist film or whatever act of whatever film. And so we started piecing them together. I think we started with, 75 or 80 genres narrowed down to 50 because that's how we thought the, how long we thought the book was going to be and then landed on 38 that we were like this is this is firing on all cylinders this batch here right page count right price count and so we uh we covered a lot of really fun ones we go everywhere from like a uh, fantasy film to christmas movie to uh 50s melodrama mm-hmm. and i think the horror whole- movie was just my favorite that um, was a, that was a, I have like a right. middling tolerance for war movies. Sometimes I love them, but I get tired of them quickly. And that just really nailed all of the, especially the the plot breakdown of how that comes together. I was like, this is the joke kept folding over on itself. I, I was very enamored <laughs> with that. Yeah, well, and the thing I love about the book, and we even said it in the introduction, is it's like this is for good screenwriters. This is a warning of how easily you can fall into cliche. For uh-huh. bad screenwriters just change the names and you're ready to go. Like that's sort of <laughs> yeah. the joke of the book, you know? Um, it's a it's a loving uh, admonishment of how frequently le- we lean on certain things so mm-hmm. that good writers can see those things and figure out how I can not necessarily avoid them, but put them in a different light or change them slightly so that the movie still feels original, you know? You're yeah. creating Ryan Johnson's. Yeah, People yeah. are going to look at this book and they're going to write a script and then they're going to subvert everything. Brilliant, sir. Uh, brilliant i honestly, trust. as i was uh reading through it i was honestly having a bit of like the opposite thought too where i was like honestly if i was stuck while writing this feels like it would be a great tool to get unstuck with oh get you unstuck I mean? and then edit later yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh for sure i mean I, constantly i'll do where if i'm writing a something from a certain genre um i will if i'm stuck i'll just put on a movie that had i'll try and find the least complicated and least interesting version of that genre and put that movie uh-huh. on because in some ways it's helpful to say like in two ways, one, this will help me crack and just sort of move forward. But also like this piece of crap got made, you know, right, like, right. Right. You know, so like oh, uh, yeah. cynically at the same time, you could say, you know, I could just phone it in, but it's also, it's fun to see uh, the varying shades and degrees of the same thing, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, there's a reason why there's been 13 Friday the 13th and people keep watching them because even though, yes, it's, it's iterations of the same thing, sometimes it's the way that people play in the shades and in the margins that makes something more interesting. You know, when you can watch number six, which feels kind of like a parody of number two, uh, mm-hmm. but it's six still kind of the same part. Yeah, uh, X is my favorite, actually. Yeah, oh, right on. Look, I've, I've watched 27 Godzilla movies in the last year. <laughs> they could make 13 more Friday the 13th, and I'd watch every single one. Why? I, they need to make another one. It's oh, killing I know. me. It's, it's crazy. been way too long. I know. It's, it's been, just too, been long. too long. Get, yeah. get well, that big boy back on that screen. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the things that we loved about the book was like we knew for the first book it had to be the big genre. So we did the 38 that are most well known, but we have some really fun ones for fingers crossed that second volume if it's good, if it does well. Um, we did we did a, an entire breakdown for a Giallo, uh, oh, which was awesome. a blast. Right on. That's so, so dope. Yeah, that that's like uh, kind of one of my newfound loves is Giallo movies. So that that is very exciting to me. I love that. Incredible. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. I just I just watched uh, Blood and Black Lace for the first time last nice. week, which is incredible. I, I love that, that movie. It Who's is that like uh, uh, that's Mario Baba, I think. Baba, it's oh, Baba. Baba's yep. nuts. Yeah. yeah, and it is like. Oh my god, dude! It's so pop tarty, colorful. Have you seen yeah. Black Sabbath? Uh, no, not yet. Dude, Mario Bava anthology. Ooh, into it, into yeah, it, get into it. it. Yeah. Get no, it. Bava's fantastic. Well, I mean, it was he was the one that basically invented the genre with the the girl who knew too much. You know, right? Yeah, I haven't seen that yet, and I'm looking forward to it. That's in black and white, though, right? It is, yeah. I mean, the thing is that I, because everybody loves the colors of Bava films, they forget like he was also a fantastic black and white uh, yeah. photographer too. You know, yeah. It's just interesting to me that like Giallo, you know, I think at yeah, least as it's red. been popularized now, yeah. You you know, you think of things like Suspiria and stuff like yeah. very I mean, uh, yeah. neon movies. I mean, Giallo means yellow. It's literally right, named yeah. after a color. Right. So yeah, oh, really? That's, yeah, oh, I, yeah. I because that. uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, the paperbacks that it's based on. I think were yellow covers. Do I have yeah. that right? Uh, okay. Yep. Oh, right on. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, um, Cheerios. Right, yes. Cheerios are yellow. Yeah, that's what they would be called yeah. in America. Yes. Cheerios. Yeah. Uh, the the British Giallos that? are Cheerios. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that would be it. Soon the, the darkness is a Cheerio. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we got to talk about the we got to talk about the post credits of Pontypool, right? Yeah. Well, before we move into that, I just want to say it is a, it's highway robbery that Stephen McHattie's career did not skyrocket. Post oh, this film totally agreed yes because i looked i looked at his imdb today and i was like this dude made three movies yesterday he's making five right now <laughs> he's been in so much stuff but like it's all these like you know it's characters named like uh, uh lieutenant colonel frank yeah, yeah, yeah. and like he's you know what i mean guys. like newspaper man like yeah yeah, yeah 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 and he pops up and he pops up in fantastic stuff too and it's always small roles he was in yep. the x-files he was in orphan black he's he's in the uh uh the beginning i mean he's the heavy at the beginning of uh um history of violence he's right. the one of the guys that comes in Fuck. to the restaurant which, um, which uh, x-files was he in do you do you remember uh, yes i mean i don't <laughs> we're getting into uh, no, the I, deep weeds now. i love the x-files um, and i grew up being tortured because my name is dan scully <laughs> and every time i wanted to talk about the x-files i had to go through a hurdle of everyone being like hey scully worth Mulder." <laughs> so yeah yeah there's an episode where Mulder's on a day there's an episode where Mulder's on a train and he's trying to get into a train compartment at the end of the train that has an alien inside of it Yes, and there's oh. a government agent on the train that he uh-huh. basically takes under. Yeah, that's him. Fuck! Wow. Oh man, it's been so he's, long, but I, I remember that clear as day. That was him. Yep, he's been around and forever. He's done. Still looked exactly the same. Yeah, and then and the thing is, it's like he pops up in amazing stuff, and he's so good. Like uh, people don't aren't even talking about the fact he's in the new uh, Come to Daddy, right? Come to Daddy. Yeah, he plays yeah. the dad. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. Oh, he plays Daddy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right on. Yep. Sold. Yeah, I'm, I'm like very much looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. 
yeah. yeah. the the trailers on my shutter <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so now we can move in. Now, once I give Stephen McCaddy the the honor he deserved. I, now please, I understand yeah. in real life he is married to uh, the actress who played Sydney. Her oh, name. I didn't know that. I, I think they are, but I don't know if that is just one of those, uh, you know, uh, IMDb fake things internet things. Yeah. yeah. I don't uh, know if it's fake news. Is essentially what it is. Right. Lisa Hool is that actress's name. You know, let's Wikipedia won't lie. Right. I'll look it up. Sure. <laughs> never. I don't think so. I, th- I think you have to cite things on Wikipedia or they, uh, they disappear forever. I heard that the entirety of Pontypool was shot in the backseat of a Dodge Dart up on the hill at the end of the town. <laughs> oh, very nice, sir. Very uh, nice. I will say, so like, you know, Pontypool is a great uh, example. Yes, he, he is married to Lisa Hool, uh-huh. but uh, it's funny because it, the uh, the year is married 19 question mark question mark. <laughs> but I actually, looking at what type of guy I assume him to be based on his character in this movie, he probably did have a real quiet wedding. Nice, low key. <laughs> Doing it. We're not going to announce to yeah. people. That's that's lame. Yeah. We don't want to do that. Um, Pontypool, you would be against the world, babe. Right. <laughs> the kind of, that's the <laughs> attitude I feel like. Yeah. yeah. This is uh this is one of my favorite kinds of movies. We talk about these kind of movies on the show all the time, where it's like a very small movie that was probably made for very little money that is goes for really big ideas and big concepts and is able to kind of execute what feels like a very large world with with very minimal resources. You know what I mean? Like my favorite example of this is Coherence. Is a oh, movie yeah. that like gets to these huge ideas with like almost nothing. But the thing I want to say is to uh, very much compliment McDonald is Pontypool. Uh, like there are a lot of examples like Coherence of the kind of movies I'm talking about. But something like Coherence, I would, uh, I, you know, not to insult it too much, but I would peg as like a. It feels uh, like a low budget small movie. Yeah, yeah. Pontypool feels like a pretty big slick Hollywood production to me, oh. even though I know it's not. You know, for sure. I I was shocked at how, when I heard how much it cost, which is like about a million bucks. Which, oh my god, that is shocking. It, it's not it's not pennies, but like right. that movie looks so good. The cinematography is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they clearly knew how to spend their money. Yeah, yeah. I want to see if the cinematographer is connected to anything else. Yeah, because I, I I was like very impressed with that in particular, where it's like I love again Cube. It's like I love movies like this, these like small movies that make the most of their small budgets. Mm-hmm. But it, this really felt like slick in a way that a lot of those don't. I was very impressed. The cinematographer yeah. is Miroslav Bajak. Uh-huh. Uh, correct the pronunciation; it's probably off. He did Land of the Dead. Oh God, Jay really? Richard Romero. Um, he also he has like a camera qu- credit on Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Oh, okay, wow, cool. Um, yeah, he's done a lot. So he, he only on works train. in Living Dead films, basically. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. No, but he's got a great yeah. TV thing. He's got uh, the Strain, which was the oh yeah, the Del Toro, Del Toro produced uh, uh, show, right? Yeah, he's got quite a. I mean, it's a lot of TV, but a fair amount of movies. Yeah, that Land makes sense though, because they cinematographers do well if they can do great work fast. Uh, yeah. in, in television and so i mean it makes sense why this movie looks so good you know that if it's right. able yeah, to work fast they were able to you know get it done in a reasonable amount of time that makes sense yeah um all right for let's, the remake of carrie well, let's, let's get deep on this, this post credits because yeah. all right so i i actually thank god you emailed us to tell me to watch it because i had turned it off before i got that far mm-hmm. um i was enjoying the there is a little bit more of the plot that kind of plays out in radio broadcasts over mm-hmm. the credits um, which which I, I think is like pretty interesting and cool. And it, it also goes the length of kind of calling into question the truth of this situation a little further, which I yeah, thought yeah. was cool. Um, but had you not emailed us to tell us, I, I then, you know, went back and, and went all the way to the end to look at that. And I don't know what the fuck to make of that. I have no idea. <laughs> I just I had it left on because I went to just like dicking around on my phone. Yeah. 
and I just was listening to the, you know, the the sounds in the background. And yeah. I, oh, wait, something's up. Something's up. Right. Well, it's like it's done in the style of Sin City, right? Would we agree that that's yeah. like the the stylist? I, I don't know if it's intentionally black, done that way, but color yeah. yeah. I mean, it yeah. starts hard. I think sharp. it starts hard black and white, and then sort of sort of shifts into color. Yes, correct. It's snowing, right? Which potentially links it up to the movie before it. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, uh, um, but they're both well dressed and appear to be a couple. Like yes. like beyond the couple that they maybe even become at the end of the movie we watched. Yeah. Um, but they're yeah, talking it, in like a weird like improv-y riff speak. Yeah, it, which it reminded <laughs> me of His Girl Friday is what it, I felt yeah, like the yeah, tone yeah. that it was trying to hit. But, and it felt like every crime like drama that came out after Tarantino made Pulp Fiction. That's yes, what it felt yeah, like. yeah, yeah. But it's like kind of not gibberish, but just nonsensical talk. Yeah. And so I read it as they managed to stay alive and become successful just by communicating through vibe, essentially, Whoa. and being nonsense words. Whoa. That was my read on that it. That this the is their, like, they're, like, not only did they figure out, like, a way to survive in this new apocalypse, they figured out a way to thrive in this they can new apocalypse. Because yeah. they do this weird improv yeah. tone speak. But I, I don't know. That was my guess, and that was after I slept on it. That's very interesting. So what about you? Did you have any? Where did you land on it? Or was it just a, too <sighs> weird for words? Well, yeah. I so I literally watched it. I don't know, like two hours before we started recording. <laughs> oh, right so I watched I, it last Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have. Well, I watched the movie a few days ago, but I, I watched that post credits like literally like mm-hmm. a couple hours ago. So I have not had a ton of time to sit on it and and ruminate on what I thought exactly was going yeah, on. Yeah. I, I really um, mostly was like. Honestly, my brain was like, is this some sort of like John dies at the end shit where it's like, oh, actually, there's like an entirely different context for the story that we just told you. And you're getting a very small window into what that real context is right here. But we're never going to tell you more than that. Does that make sense? What I just said, even I I recognize all of those words. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like like the idea that uh, almost like. How do I explain this? Like like that scene cuts to almost like this, I don't know, greater reality of this story that we didn't know about. Right. And, and maybe the story we were watching was a story within us. Sto- I don't know. My did brain you was watch tr- twin peaks, the return. Because I did. You should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to, I have not yet, but yeah, I, I was trying to figure out like, is this like some sort of super reality outside of what we have already watched or does that kind of make sense? What I I'm saying? Know what you're saying. I, yeah. I think I know where you're headed with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So I'm about to blow your minds. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna because I'm just gonna throw a couple of things at you. First of all, the uh, the theory about them escaping and the idea of them using the new language to be able to communicate. Uh, I think this is what I'm gonna say. Point one, I think that's true, and for the following reasons, um, I believe that when you listen to what they're saying, they have intentionally replaced the way that they say things with other weird phrases but they clearly are in, they're getting at the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that when they're describing doing something, they're describing it in a way that none of us would, but in the way that I said before, I don't understand it literally, but I understand it emotionally. Yeah. That's, that's what happens in that moment. You get a sense of what they're saying to each other, even though you don't understand the words. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, that was his theory, right? At the end was you need to unlearn the words that are infected because those are the things that are going to kill you. And so mm-hmm. what they've done is they found their workarounds. And there's even a moment, I think the very last moment, literally, when she she leans in and she's about to say something to him. I believe it looks like she's about to say baby. And then he puts his finger, his finger to yes. her lips. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right? So 
all of that holds up with the theory that you just mentioned, right? I have a second separate theory that I think is simultaneously also correct uh-huh. because that's the way that Tony Burgess and Bruce McDonald like to mess with us, right? Yeah. 40 um, chess. Here we go. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm so, so excited. So this is what I think, right? When we cut to it, it is in stark contrasting black and white before it fades into color, right? Yes. Do you guys remember the only other moment in the film that was in stark black and white? Is it? Wait. Oh, yes. When uh, he's doing the obituaries. The obituaries, right? When we talk about the people who have passed on because of the disease, right? Right, right. It is equally possible that they have died or they are in the midst of dying. And the reason that he put it in black and white is because we are seeing their moment of death or their moment after death in the same way that we saw the obituaries of all the other people that had died during this plague. That's interesting. And I think incredible. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Yeah. Wow. I forgot about that little kind of montage Mm -hmm. of deaths. That's like such a rock and roll. It is a section of the movie where it just goes balls to the wall for a few minutes. That's like really, and it's upsetting too. It is. That's super cool. Oh Oh, yeah. They talk about the death of the 10 year old boy and yeah, it's it's brutal stuff, but here's the thing that's going to blow your mind the most. Right. Um, When I talked to Tony Burgess a few months ago, uh, I was asking him about, he's been talking for years about making a sequel to Pontypool. Yeah, uh, I, I, I read a little bit about the idea of a sequel to Pontypool online today. Yeah, and it was going to be called Pontypool Changes Everything. Um, okay. The plot has been kept under wraps. I don't know exactly what, know where it goes. There's other stuff that happened in the book, apparently, that did not get translated into the movie. So maybe it's that stuff. Okay. Maybe it's a sequel. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that it's a continuation of the Stephen McHattie story because I, much as I love this world, I don't know what this story is without the presence of Stephen McHattie. I, yeah, I agree yeah. with that. But here's the interesting thing. What he told me was, I think we have somebody on board to uh, put put forth the funding to make our Pontypool sequel, but um, that we already shot a pseudo sequel to Pontypool that is a sequel to the end credit sequence. And I okay. said, what, what, what does that mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so basically what he told me is they made an entire other feature film that only focuses on the world that he created in that closing credit sequence it's a film called dreamland it's apparently already shot and it will be coming out sometime soon so, so i saw so it's like an adjacent reality sort of thing right so i so i saw dreamland on his imdb i also saw this vague quote about a sequel to the post credits thing which maybe is why my brain jumped to the idea that it was some sort of super reality because maybe it was already floating around in my head that like there's there's a sequel based on just that sequence and so when i saw that sequence i was like well okay so then if you were to make a sequel that's only based on this what does that actually mean this is exactly do you know what i mean well and i think uh, one of the things i've always said is that i think that this movie is trying to teach us to un unlearn the necessity of knowing how or why a story ends the way that it does Mm -hmm. and i think in some ways the fact that he's making two sequels to a film that go in opposite directions is him copping to the fact that this film is intentionally ambiguous it's intentionally saying more than one thing at a time um but yeah the film it's going to be called dreamland it's going to have um hool and mccaddy back and it's also going to have Juliette lewis and henry rollins in it so i'm looking at the um looking at the uh the lineup right now and lisa hool's in it and actually the uh oh no that's a different guy yeah this is like a, a matched cast almost entirely very yeah, cool. So, and then, like I said, the the sequel. Um, technically, it's called Pontypool Changes Everything, but the joke is it's actually called Typo Chan because some of the letters from Pontypool Changes are missing. Okay. So, oh, nice. Okay. 
I, that was something uh, watching Pontypool this time around when they first brought up the title. Yes. Uh, they lingered on typo for a little bit. Yes. And that yeah. just in a movie about miscommunication and and uh, replacing words or words having new meaning that resonates in hindsight. Yeah, I thought the same thing. There, there's. I do like a movie like this where it really everything down to the lettering of the titles is trying to tell you story. You know, is trying to oh, convey yeah. theme and and meaning. Yeah, um, yeah. This movie plays with words for so long, and even like the characters themselves play with words in certain scenes. Like I don't know if you remember where he's uh, he's talking about. Um, He's saying some story. She's telling him to do the stories about which schools are closed. Yeah. And he keeps talking about, you know, all this crazy stuff. And he's like, full disclosure. And in the end of the headset, Mike, while he's talking, she says, not disclosure, school closures. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. She's even doing like even within the, the confines of the world itself, they're still doing this sort of play on words. Everything has, you know, multiple meanings and this sort of slant rhymes and things like that. Right. Right. The uh, sort of um, uh, free association of words and yeah, thoughts yeah, yeah. and that kind right. of thing. Yeah. Well, and even the uh, the whole idea of the way um, Laurel Ann ends up getting taken over, right? Like the idea of, I, I thought it was fascinating that the word for her was miss missing, right? Because oh, right, yes, it, there's so many different meanings for that, right? Like that yeah. something is literally missing, or that you are missing someone, and the idea that she had been out in Afghanistan and came back, and that oh. there's a clear sense of some more than friend feelings that she has for um, Mazzy, whether it's um whether it's a fatherly thing or whether there's some sense of like he has a, he's a male authority figure and that she connects to that in some way like the idea that missing and mazzy ended up connected in her brain and that like oh. it makes me think like the word meant one thing and then it meant something else when it connected to mazzy and that's what tripped her brain like there's just so many little details in this film that if you really dig in there's just so much there's so much character even that could be gleaned just from looking at the way that words are used in the conversations yeah, I mean, that's a great thought, too, because and so this actually goes back to my weird confusion over, like, how long has Grant been at this job is actually the way that um, Laurel Ann sort of uh, almost like fawns over him throughout the movie. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, where I was like, it seems. But D Dan brought up, he was like, well, maybe she's like, a, you know, maybe she kind of knew about whatever show he had before this. Maybe she like was already into this guy. Well, and now we see I her working him or... as an art bill. Yeah. I figured she was like, right. I'm into this kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm yeah. A weirdo like that. That's yeah the, but no, yeah. that helps me because I did because but to, to what you're saying too, Chris, it's like she does have such a um, an affection for Grant that I was like, how does that happen on the first day in the job? You know what I mean? It's like this right. seems like a relationship that has to have been existed for some amount of time well and I, it's clear that massey has some level of awareness of what's going on with her because remember the, the the really sad moment where he realizes he didn't give her her valentine yes yeah i thought yeah. that was a really powerful moment um emotionally but also at the same time it does give you that sense it doesn't tell you how long they've worked together but it's been long enough that he uh he he had he got one for everybody in fact the lady that uh, there's a running joke of the the woman that was supposed to come into work and never did and there's a right. single shot later in the movie where you just see the valentine that he brought sat on her desk and she never showed up and it's just oh my god sitting you know there lonely. that's so funny i didn't even put together that that was the particular valentine that that shot was that's very funny yeah that's yeah. really funny <laughs> Yeah, no, this uh, it's one of those movies, like you said, the the two we should maybe do a movie like Room Two Thirty Seven, where each chapter is us talking like a lunatic about the film that we like. Oh my god, about Shining! This is um, a great idea, actually. Yo, actually, there's a good idea for a movie in that, right? Like a documentary about people, the movie people are obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. movie oh, obsession. Well, a, a continuing yeah. series, if nothing else. Yeah. yeah, each week a different lunatic in a different film they're obsessed with. If we yeah. did one about this movie, we could call it Ponty School. <laughs> and it's just people giving you lessons on Pontypool. Uh -huh. 
All right, I like I'm that. leaving. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I like that. I'm, I'm out. Into it. I'm out. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a lower level pun in the world of Pontypool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, man, I, I genuinely don't even know where. There's so much stuff to talk about, but I feel like we've circled so much of it, like in you know capital letters, that I almost feel like there's still stuff to be discovered. But to, uh, we should leave some some meat on the bone for people to find themselves too. I'm into that because but I was only hardly listening anyway because my brain was going like, we take the kids to the Ponty pool after they get out of Ponty school. On the, <laughs> I don't know. My brain started going down like a weird Ponty pool pun path. You started it's doing insane. your own sort of Grant Mazzy monologue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ponty, I feel Ponty like I'm going track. to get this book. I would like to read this book. I would like this to read might, this book. This yeah. might come up next for me. Yeah. Um, we'll start our just so interesting, and I'd love to see how these word connections are represented in visual text yeah that the idea of that excites me i would like to see that i also just the last thing i'll say before i don't know if we wrap up or whatever i just i thought one of the funniest things is when they translate the french message that they received that it was broadcast everywhere um when the french language is telling them what things they should avoid a i think it's hilarious and sort of um, kind of prescient that they basically are saying that the English language makes people stupid and violent. But uh, <laughs> more than that, I thought it was hilarious that the things that they list, terms of endearment, the English language, and rhetorical discourse. That was yeah, my yeah. favorite. That was the one you have to steer clear of. When I heard that, I was like, okay, these guys know exactly what they're doing here. My, my I got a good belly laugh out of the last uh, warning, which was do not translate this message. <laughs> yeah. And when they get to that, there's always a pause of like, ah, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it may be, uh, we did it. Well, it's the, it's the cla- I mean, this whole movie is basically built on, uh, on, uh, I can't even think of the word where, where, you know, something negates its own purpose where they, they want to get the word out to people, but the very words that they're getting out to people may be very well the ones that are causing the thing to happen to the people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So. yeah it's a, it's a, a fruitless endeavor, basically. Yeah. Like there's, there's, no, it's a no win scenario. Tail. It's a Kobayashi Maru. I was, that's, I was going to try and come up with that reference, yeah. and I'm glad you did because I would have <laughs> thought about it forever and never come up with that name. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, and I mean the the I, what I was going to say in the, real quick in relation to that is to to tip my hat to McCaddy one more time is just like this whole movie is his voice and his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. It's like he's got the perfect voice for this to be like a radio announcer, right? Like he sounds great for this, but also like a, a lot of the movie rides on watching him process the information he's getting on his yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah. he's a man of many words on the mic, but yeah. off the mic, not so much. Right. And a lot of a lot of his characters watching the process of him uh, watching the gears turn. We, it's even that he cla- acts the hell out of those gears turn. And yeah. it's even that classic, not to use him as an example again, but that classic Alan Jones, Alex Jones thing of like, there's two Alex Joneses, right? There's the guy that's actually on TV that we see, and then like whatever fucking real human, if he exists, underneath well, there. You know we what I mean? Comedy. We did yeah. comedy. There, yep. there was definitely a different Dan yes. Scully on stage than in real life. Right. You know, and there's it's a like different we, Garrett Smith on stage. The thing that's very interesting about this movie is watching Grant Mazzy, who, because of the context in which we're watching him, we watch both versions of Grant simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's true. We see the radio announcer, Grant, who's putting the Grant Mazzy spin on things. As we hear these sort of background chatter he also goes through with his producers, which is the real Grant. And we also get to see Grant's face as he delivers yeah, the yeah, Grant yeah. Mazzy persona, which is not always matching the Grant Mazzy persona, right? It's, yeah. it's sometimes the face is reading something different. You know, it's, it's fascinating. In the, yeah. uh, the last action hero world that, yeah. that bonds all movies into one world where they're all collectively living together, I like to think that Grant Mazzy 
and Adrian Barbeau's character in The Fog uh-huh. eventually hooked up because they're they're both great radio and they'd probably be a lot of fun together and have a good time. Yeah, maybe oh, take for a cruise. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the other thing you got to say about McCaddy too is that the level of gravitas he can get from moments that are absolutely absurd. Uh, there's a moment that is both moving and ridiculous at the same time. It's the point where. I don't even remember his exact lines, but it's something like where he's describing what just happened to Ken. And he says, that was the voice of a little baby from inside the body of a teenage boy. And for some reason, while while I'm watching it, it's moving and, and disturbing. And when I step back for even a second, I go, oh, my God, that's nonsense. Yeah, that's and so it's funny. amazing that he can it's hold that funny. delicate balance. That's true, and because oh, it, it, it can play as a joke, it can play as deeply terrifying, yeah. um, and it's utterly absurd. Yeah, that's fit. That is really funny. That's funny, that's... and you delivered that nicely because we're both cracking up yeah. over here. That was good. <laughs> Very good. Um, My work here is done. Yeah, so I was going to say, and actually, I do, I do think that probably I, we can wrap it up. Yeah. I, I, you did mention that you're a filmmaker. Do you, can you just tell us a little bit about what you do in that that regard? Yeah, not much. Um, um, I've made a few films. I'm mostly a screenwriter. Um, one of the things I am working on, which I'm pretty excited about, it hasn't premiered yet, but I will keep you posted is I'm creating a masterclass specifically designed towards helping, uh, marginalized filmmakers, communities that don't normally get the opportunity to tell their own stories. I'm creating a masterclass specifically to help them utilize this, the, I guess you could call it the subgenre of fake doc filmmaking to basically make super inexpensive or basically free films to be able to get their worldview, their culture, their stories out without having to get their story accepted by the mainstream, the system in order to get made. So I'm creating that. that That's incredible. Yeah, that's great. You're going to reverse Pontypool. You're breaking down the barrier of communication. (laughs) That is my goal. Right yeah. on. Oh, right on. Yeah, that's please exciting. keep us posted about that because we'll we'll like yeah, we'll uh, share that and stuff. That 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 sounds great. Um. Uh. Yeah. And and uh, in general, like, please plug yourself for our audience. Like, where can they find you online? And where can they find the book? Like, where, oh, where can... I'm glad that you said that. I'm. I think my uh my publisher probably would have been angry if we got to this point. <laughs> and I forgot. Yeah, the book is called uh, Spoiler Alert: The Badass Book of Movie Plots. It's obviously available through Amazon. It's going to be through most of your booksellers as well. It's available in the UK and here in the US. Um, the publisher, actually, Lawrence King, is in the UK, and they are a fantastic company. They do a lot of um, art-driven books. A lot of uh, cool. beautiful. They they do. Um, really gorgeous like tarot decks with um artists that they've hired to paint the pictures and stuff anyway they do a lot of really beautiful work and so that book is coming out through lawrence king you can get it through amazon and then um kathleen and i have also rewritten three non-fiction books about the history and philosophy of uh various genre films we did one i mentioned it indie science fiction cinema today which is the sci-fi one we did one called the anatomy of fear which is interviews with 25, uh, I guess you could call them sort of like independent horror film uh, and science fiction film creators. Everybody from Eric Red, who made The Hitcher, all the way to uh, Jeff Burr, who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Larry cool. Fessenden, JT Petty. A lot Fessenden, of really great yeah, minds. Cool. I love Fessenden. Um, I have a Wendigo tattoo. Oh, that's fantastic. He would be glad to hear that. He is I, actually through Andrew Sensenig. I got, through Andrew Sensenig, I got a picture of my tattoo to Fessenden. One of my proudest accomplishments. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, he's um, he's done the. I think he's done the Wendigo story three times now, including the fantastic episode of Fear itself, starring Doug Jones. Yes, which, if you yes, haven't indeed. seen, oh my god, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, and then our third book is called uh, Horror uh, Horror Film by Subgenre, and it's literally seventy five subgenres of horror film broken down by uh, categories like 
basement horror, holiday horror, um, abduction horror. And then basically what we do is we talk about the psychological aspect of that genre, what that taps into as far as fears and humans. And then uh, we talk about some of the things that pop up in those genres and then also sort of like exemplary titles from the genre, you know, like so three or four that would be great examples of this kind of subgenre. So as you can tell, we're kind of interested in the idea of genres and subgenres and the way that that is a meta conversation that's happening along with the conversation that the movie itself is having. Yeah, and I just shared a large silent reaction to the mention of that last one, the yeah. subgenres of horror. You just sold two copies of that book, and yeah. at that, that point, I'm probably buying the other books too. So, and um, I because I always forget to mention it, um, I'm only really on Twitter as far as social media goes yeah. because I like to only share my misery in small bites. Um, <laughs> and my my handle is ck vanderkay. My last name is vanderkay. V a n d e r k two a's and a y because i'm dutch and it's confusing um <laughs> ah. yeah ck vander k is my twitter handle and uh if you go there you can find all of the stuff that uh that i've worked on i, I link to it constantly and talk right. about the work and movies in general awesome right we'll, on and we'll, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes too so that people uh know where to find you and, and can get copies of your book and stuff because uh Dan and I both definitely are co-signed on like that book. This book, spoiler alert, rocks. Yeah, it's totally it's cool. It's extremely cool. And uh, I think people, you, you should, if you're listening to this right now, please at least go look it up on Amazon because you will probably buy it just looking at it. And I will say yes. it reminded me of the kind of thing that back when I was like a young film newbie yeah. and I was just trying to consume everything and learn everything I could about film. That was the exact type of book that I would have picked up and it would have purely enchanted me. Yeah. But even now as a 35-year-old and a writer, I'm reading it going, oh my God, I'm learning. Yeah. And so the fact that it can like fit both versions of me as a movie fan, I think speaks volumes to the appeal for it. So I, yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, my goal has always been to sort of be a film curator in some ways, whether I'm actually sharing the films themselves or talking about film in general. And I will say if, if someone wants to see some of the book, if you actually go to Lawrence King's website and look up the book, there are, there's a section you can, you can read through some of the pages so you can get a sense of the book. And then if you like it, you can actually get it straight from the Lawrence King website too. That's great. Yeah. Right on. Sounds good. Um, Okay, great. Well, Chris, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time here, man. Dan and I will just do like our quick little closing thing here that you can uh, join us in, and uh, and then we'll we'll kind of wrap up with you on the other side. Fantastic. Um, you can uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter and the internet everywhere at I like two movie. It's numeric two. Um, I like two movie at gmail .com. And I will mention we are in the process of launching a Patreon, which yes. is going to get you availability to bonus episodes. Yes. And a lot of extra content and merch and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's a slow process, but uh, things are happening with it. So stay tuned. Yeah. And we're gonna have some previews of that coming up in the coming weeks as well. Yeah, we got we we have some uh, new ideas for new content cooking that that should be uh, coming with a Patreon coming this year for sure. I just so. can't wait to call people patrons. Yes. Oh, I think we've agreed on flute benders. Though, flute benders. Flute yes, benders. they'll be yeah, our flute works. benders. They'll be the flute benders. We'll explain it to you later, Chris. Yeah, and you can find <laughs> me everywhere at Dan Scully. That's across everything. Cinema seventy six findy dot com. I'm gonna be on an upcoming episode of Shame Files podcast. Uh, where we talk about Kramer versus Kramer for Oscars month. Yeah. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So I don't know when that's dropping, but uh, you can check that out when Evs. And I think that's everything for me, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. And uh, I'm at Philadelphia. <laughs> Thank you for on, confirming. Yes, yeah, that's, the credits that's all the damn things. Because I don't know. I got it. Uh, I'm at Philadelphia on Twitter. I'm on letterbox.com slash Philadelphia. I review everything I watch there, including Commando, which I watched for the first time this week. And is <laughs> Let off some steam. <laughs> the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. I've never had so a better good. time watching a movie. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find me on cinema76.com, farsideablog.com, thatentertains.com, 
And uh, let's wrap it up. So, uh, Chris, you can join us in this. My name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. My name is Chris Vanderkay, and I love to movie movie. Yes. And we all know that you like to movie movie because we like to movie. movie.